All right. So, uh, allergies. Those are fun. Oh my gosh. I was thinking this morning, literally, I was thinking, it's like pollen is the surprise winner in nature's version of rock, paper, scissors. Like, think about it. It's like insects beat pollen. Birds beat insects. Bears beat birds. Man beats bears. Pollen beats man. Like, it's like pollen. uh, And I'm speaking of the birds and the bees. So bad. It's so bad. So bad. I'm sorry. I had to do it. Ron Carlson, can I get some love? Anyway, that was totally... All right, so here's the deal. We're starting a new series called Uncovering Sexuality. If you have a Bible, turn to... Well, just hold off. I'll get there in a second. Um, hey, let me, let me do this before we get into talking about God's vision, God's, God's design for our sexuality. I, I just want to confess my fear right out of the gate. And, and maybe it can be a fear converted into prayer. It's our, our teaching team. We, we, we would pray into this and are praying into this that, that you would resist two temptations. Um, temptation number one is that you would marginalize grace during this series, that you would hear judgment where God is not condemning, okay? Uh, that you would somehow tune out the grace. Uh, the, the second prayer would be that you would resist the temptation to marginalize or tune out truth, that you would maybe hear permission where God is not offering blessing, uh, so my prayer is that you will see both, both the grace and the truth. John, uh, the, the, the writer of uh, the fourth gospel, says that uh, Jesus has come to us. Um, the word became flesh, made his dwelling among us, that, that he is the one who reveals the Father God. And that he comes to us full of grace and a truth. To miss either one is essentially to miss Jesus. If you you miss either one, you're completely missing Jesus. And it's our heart that we would move and move our sexuality towards Jesus and his good intention for it. And in fact, grace and truth in the Bible are virtually synonymous words. Grace is all about free help to know and be like Jesus. Truth is living that out with integrity. And so uh, this is important. It's important because what I'm going to do today is I'm going to lift up uh, God's vision for our sexuality, uh, his uh, ideal expression uh, for our sexuality. And when we do that, it's easy to exclude ourselves from it and go, that feels too far away from where I am right now. Don't do that. Hang on and allow the wisdom and the grace of God to draw you into where he is calling you. Okay. Can you do that? Good. Next week, Dave's going to explore some of the ways that sin corrupts and co-ops our sexuality. Um, but today, we're going to talk about how good it is, okay? And if it seems like it's... If, if you're not listening, if it, if it doesn't seem too good to be true. So, um, I want you to also do this. Would you resist listening for a sound bite that just makes you think that we agree with you? Um, okay, so more important than what we think is what Jesus wants to shape in you. Uh, Who you're becoming is far more important than simply agreeing to concepts and ideas. In fact, I'd rather you disagree but wrestle than just agree straight away and not really think about how you are being shaped and transformed. Are you with me? Can we do that? Okay, so where do we begin a series like this? Where do you start? Uh, I heard one Genesis, maybe. We'll get there. I suggest we begin with a collection of erotic Hebrew poetry known as the Song of Solomon. Okay? Sounds interesting, doesn't it? So go ahead and turn your Bibles to Song of Solomon, chapter 1, verse 1. Chapter 1, verse 1. We're going to dive into this book. Uh, it is a book, by the way, that is somewhat scandalous in, uh, in its history. People have often wrestled with how can a book that is so explicit fit in the Bible? Uh, and that is usually birthed out of a misconception of what ought to be in the Bible. Uh, but the Jewish uh, interpretation uh, was predominantly that this is a, a, an allegory of Yahweh and his covenant love for Israel. The Christian tradition picked up on that theme and allegorized it to be a picture of Christ's love for the church. There are all kinds of ideas about Song of Solomon. But on uh, just a basic observation of the text, here's what we get. A wonderful, robust celebration of human sexuality and romantic love. So it begins with 
Song of Solomon, or Solomon's Song of Songs. Most people agree that it is not authored by Solomon himself. It would be very difficult to conceive of somebody who had 900 wives authoring this book. But it is... Uh, it is in his tradition, the tradition of his seeking wisdom, and so therefore it is of Solomon. And it is the Song of Songs, which is a Hebrew idiom for the greatest. It's the greatest of songs, isn't it? It is a good song. So let's get into it. It's the greatest song. There's three characters you're going to get to know. There's she, there's he, and there's friends. And they're all contributing to this poetic discussion, and it's really interesting. So let's begin. Solomon's Song of Songs, verse 2. She is speaking. Let him kiss me with the kisses of his mouth. Woohoo! For your love is more delightful than wine. Pleasing is the fragrance of your perfumes. Your name is like perfume poured out. No wonder the young women love you. Take me away with you. Let us hurry. Let the, cha- let the king bring me into his chambers. Friends are saying, we rejoice and delight in you. We will praise your love more than wine. So now, quick observation. When we talk about sex in church, it is usually two men, and it is about lust, and the message is, don't do it. Good message, bad message. It's a good message. It's an incomplete message, okay? It's an incomplete message. So what do you get in the Song of Solomon? It begins with, and ends with, by the way, if you go to the end, it's the, it begins and ends with the voice of a woman. It ends and begins with she. And the message, it, it is a book about desire, and the message about desire is, do this! It's a positive view of desire and sexual intimacy and expression. It is a positive message about sexuality. Look at the text. It says, let him kiss me with the kisses of his mouth. There's permission being given. This is important. Okay, guys. There's permission, but it's also inviting him to action. She is initiating something here. She's saying, let him kiss me with the kisses of his mouth, for your love is more delightful than wine. Now, the word for love here is not just like nice feelings and flowers. This is a word for lovemaking. It is, it is like a gritty, erotic word, dode in Hebrew. And so the woman gets the party started and the man is standing there going, this is awesome, right? He's stoked. But get this, he needs to be the sort of man who makes her feel like this to begin with. So it is not entirely passive, guys. Right? There was some work beforehand. And so, let me just say right off the bat, that this is not the message that I inherited in my experience in the church. This is not the, the overwhelmingly positive experience uh, or positive impression on sexuality in Song of Solomon was not my experience. Now, my experience in, in, in the church growing up was not nearly as bad as many, but it wasn't exactly clear and it wasn't always positive. Uh, I would say this, that it was never really okay to struggle or to express what was going on inside of me. Puberty hit me like a semi-truck in the fifth grade, right? So I was taller than everybody else, smellier than everybody else, hairier than everybody else, and, and then Dave quickly outgrew me. But, uh, we, 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 we didn't know what was going on. I didn't know what was going on. The main thing I got was, here's a stick of deodorant. There's this thing called sex. I don't want you to do it. I'm like, okay. I don't even know what that is. I'm in fifth grade, right? And, uh, and so it became this very serious conversation in my household. And I believe my parents did the best they knew how to do. I don't think that they were fully equipped by the church either to have this conversation with me. And so all I knew it was something that I wasn't supposed to want to do until later. So I, it, but I was also very interested in what might be involved in sex. All right. And so right out of the bat, it wasn't a normal conversation and therefore it wasn't a safe conversation. And it wasn't even a conversation at all in church. So let me just start out and say my working assumption, our working assumption as a team, is ultimately that when we kick off a series like this, our experience with you tells us that the amount of pain and the amount of trauma, the amount of hurt in this room is staggering. It's staggering. 
If each one of us could write out the story of our pain in this area, we would be here for months and weeks, or in, in, in probably years. You've been used, you've been abused, you've been shamed or rejected. There are women here who've been raped by somebody who was supposed to protect you. There are men here who have been molested by somebody who is supposed to inspire you. There are people here you've been made to feel shame, which is not just I did a bad thing, it is I am a bad thing. And that is not a free and good way to live. So because of abuse or violation, that is where you're at. There are teens here, you're deep in to sexual encounters, both real and digital, and it is confusing and all kinds of things going on there. There are marriages where it's not safe to talk about feelings, let alone sexual feelings. There are marriages here where it is cold. Your greatest victory at this season of your life is that you're just not divorced yet. Where it's not warm and there are there's no no intimacy. There are uh, some of you who are have been cheated on, some of you who are being cheated on, some of you are even thinking about cheating right now. Others of you just wish you could be in a a positive, committed relationship. Some of you are longing to give your life to someone for life, but it's not the story you've been given. Some of us here today, you have same-sex attraction, and this is a conversation you are just wanting to know. Is it ever going to be safe to have this conversation in my church? Maybe you're here today, and you're just like, I want freedom from it. Others of you here today, and you're like, I just want permission for it. But these are not the answers that you're getting. And so this is a source of pain. Let me just pause here, too, at the beginning of this series and say to you, if that's you, if if you're a person with same-sex attraction, we're going to get into that later. I'm going to invite my friend Brad, who's a phenomenal theologian and friend and pastor and father, and he's going to share his story later on in the series. But for right now, I want to say that the big C church, and sometimes this small C church, instead of being a place of grace and healing and safety, has been a place just of pain and judgment and exclusion. And I just want to apologize to you right now. I just want to say I'm sorry. And I know that doesn't scratch the surface. But I want to say it's not right, and you should be loved. You should be loved, period. Now, of course, during this series, we're going to talk about the reality that love does not always equal agreement or even affirmation. I love my kids. I would die for my kids. I cannot affirm all of their choices. I cannot agree with all of their choices, but I'm committed to the relationship for life. I'm committed. I'm committed. And so love means ultimately that each one of us belongs at the table and that every one of us deserves to be treated the same as the rest of us messed up people. And so... In fact, if you're somebody that I've mentioned already, I want to say maybe the church hasn't done a great job of walking alongside you. Maybe it has done a phenomenal job of walking alongside you. But at the very least, we want to begin this series by saying, let's start having a conversation where a conversation like this can be normal. It's not shameful. Where we can walk together toward Jesus in this conversation. So because that's my assumption, our assumption is that all of us carry sexual baggage. We all carry brokenness. I also want to say at the outset that we're not going to throw rocks at each other in this series. We're going to talk about Jesus' vision for our sexuality. That's truth. But we're not going to do it to the exclusion of his vision for grace-filled, loving relationships. That's grace. So his vision is of a community of broken people who realize that their only hope, period, is the free grace of Jesus offered in the cross. And so the ground before the cross is utterly level. And so there's really not any difference between heterosexual sin or gay sin. I can't say that my arrogance or greed is any better than your sin of lust. I can't look down on anybody if I struggled differently. And some of you are here today and there is no real struggle. There is no sense that your sexual desire or fulfillment has any challenges. But you do struggle with the way you look at other people and talk to them and treat them. I would suggest to you that this is just as much sexual brokenness as anything. Because sexuality is about our innate drive to connect and relate and be bonded to others. So here's the thing. Being broken in our sexuality does not negate the vision 
of sexuality. It doesn't make the vision the problem. We're not going to war against truth and we're not going to, we're actually going to pursue truth even when it costs us. But the reality is that the problem has traditionally been the application of God's vision rather than the vision itself. So we're, we're going to be a church. We're going to be a church that understands that moving towards God's vision is a process and it's walked out with each other with a lot of love and a lot of grace and a lot of honesty. Are you with us? Okay, let's do that. Let's get back to the Bible. Song of Solomon. Now, chapter 4. Fast forward. Let him kiss me with his kisses. He responds to that. Because he's not an idiot. Right? He's like, I'm busy. I'm doing work. Let him kiss me with his kisses. What? Right? Yes, I'm in. Right? And so, he says... How beautiful you are, my darling. Oh, how beautiful. Your eyes behind your veil are doves. Your hair is like a flock of goats descending from the hills of Gilead. What? That just gets you going, ladies, doesn't it? Oh, your teeth are like a flock of sheep just shorn coming up from washing. She's got clean teeth. Each of it has its twin. Not one of them is alone. She's got all of her teeth, man. And he's like, it is hot. It's so hot. This is awesome. This is awesome. Oh, man. Uh, So what is going on here? He's romantic. Sexual love is romantic. The Bible exalts romance here. He's saying this is good. He's pursuing her. He's using his words to speak value and love into her life. Can I get an amen, ladies? Yeah, use your words, guys. <laughs> this is good. Okay, so then, verse 3, he says, Your lips are like scarlet ribbon. Your mouth is lovely. Your temples behind your veil are like halves of pomegranates. I don't know why that's cool. He says, Your neck is like the Tower of David, built with courses of stone. On it hang a thousand shields, all of them shields of warriors. What's he saying? He's saying you're royal, you're gracious, you are elegant. Your breasts are like two fawns, like the twin fawns of a gazelle that browse among the lilies. Uh, Again, another comparison that doesn't work for me, (laughs) but it worked then, right? He's digging her. He's just digging her. And so what's going on? He goes on and he says, verse 7, You all are altogether beautiful, my darling. There is no flaw in you. Now, we all know that we have flaws, right? Every one of us is insecure about something, something in our life and for sure something on our body. But what is he doing here? He's just affirming her. He's saying, when I look at you, I don't see flaws. How great. That is, that's good marital Love making, right? That is like, you are insecure about this. But let me tell you, I adore it. Speak life and value and affirmation into your spouse. It's awesome. And then he goes on. Look at verse 11. He says, your lips drop sweetness as the honeycomb, my bride. Milk and honey are under your tongue. How do you think he knows that? All right, you guys got to do better than first service. What is he talking about? What is that? Huh? Come on, shout it out. It's cool. What is it? French kissing. No, it's Hebrew kissing. They were doing it way before France was even a country. All right, so... Well, here's what you get to do tonight. If you're a married person, you get to go home and you get to say, let's try some Hebrew kissing. Let's see where it leads. Have a breath mint. This is good. All right. And so it's, it's sensual. It's sensual. And then he goes on though and he says this, verse 12, you are a garden locked up, my sister and my bride. You are a spring enclosed, a sealed fountain. He's just, he's talking about her singular devotion. She is, she has integrity here. In verse 16, she now speaks, Awake, north wind, and come, south wind, blow on my garden that its fragrance may spread everywhere. Let my beloved come into his garden and taste its choice fruits. (laughs) Right? We know what's going on there. 
And so the curtain closes, right? The curtain closes. It's not vulgar. It's not pornographic. It is a bit explicit, but it's, it's, it's poetic. Verse five. Now, verse five or chapter five, verse one, chapter five, verse one. What's, what, what happens here? Now he's speaking. He's, we, it is implied what happens. He says, I have come into my garden, my sister, my bride. I have gathered my myrrh with my spice. I have eaten my honeycomb and my honey. I have drunk my wine and my milk. And the friends all say, eat friends and drink your fill of love. These are cool friends. Go for it, guys. I don't know. That sounds like a little weird. Those those friends feel like a little bit much for me. But anyway, uh, they're cheering it on. They're cheering it on. And that's so good. And so, all of a sudden, he switches his language from descriptive of her to now personal pronouns. Right? The personal pronouns of my, I, um, my wine, my milk. And so, he is referring to what she has offered as his now. And this is not dominant possessiveness. He is describing their relationship and their experience as if they are one. Now... If the Song of Solomon makes a poetic point about human sexuality, Genesis makes a theological point about human sexuality. So let's rewind in your Bible and uh, hit Genesis 1. Genesis 1.1. 1, 1. All right. Let's figure out what this oneness he's describing is coming from. What is going on there? Look at, look at Genesis with me. Uh, he says, uh, okay, in the beginning... God created the heavens and the earth, and now the earth was formless and empty, and darkness was over the surface of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters. And God said, let there be light. And there was light, and God saw that the light, uh, sorry, God saw that the light was good, and he separated the light from the darkness. Now go down to verse 10. Um, Here, God called the dry ground land, and gathered the waters, and he called those seas, and God saw that it was what? Good, good. Verse 12. Um, the land produced vegetation, plants bearing seed according to their kinds, and trees bearing fruit with seed in it according to their kinds, and God saw that it was good. Okay, it keeps going on. Verse 18, good. Verse 21, good. Verse 25, good. God is seeing all that he's making, and he's just infusing it with this wonderful Hebrew word, tov. It's Tov, it's good. It's deeply satisfying and good. And so the message here is God is making all of these things according to their kinds, animals and plants, and he's ordering the land, getting it ready for the, for human habitation. And he says, creatureliness, physicality, material embodiedness is what? It's good. It's good. And then God interrupts the pattern in verse 26 and says this. He says, then God said, let us make mankind, Adam, in our image, in our likeness, so that they may rule over the fish and the sea and the birds in the sky and over the livestock and all the wild animals and over all the creatures that move along the ground. Verse 27, so God created mankind, Adam, humanity, in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. Oh my goodness, what in the world is going on here? So he creates Adam, humanity, and they are in the image of God, right? And it is plural, it's plural. He creates the male and female. In other words, sexuality is a part of the divine image. Happy face, sad face on human sexuality at this point in the Bible. Happy face, super positive message, right? Super positive. It was God's idea to begin with. In fact, he says, it reflects me. It shows my likeness. Let me make a point here about the nature of sexuality uh, being a part of reflecting God's likeness. First of all, this section begins with a we, an us. Let us make mankind, Adam, in our image. Who's talking? Who's the we? What's the us? This is, this is self-descriptive. So there's, there's a train of thought that says this is angels. He's talking to his angels like, hey, crew, let's make some people in our image. The problem is the Bible never affirms that humans are made in the image of angels, always made in the image of God. If you go fast forward to Genesis 9, right, you get, again, made in God's image. There's no angels there. And so there's a mystery 
of this us-ness as central to God's nature and his character, that he is persons in relationship, he's persons in communion from the very beginning. And you get Father, Son, and Spirit in the New Testament. And you get all three, actually, in chapter 1. You have God who's creating, he's speaking with his word, and the Spirit is hovering. And you get all of these things. And then John comes along and he says, the word, right, made his dwelling among us from the Father who sends the Spirit, not the Son. Father and Son send the Spirit together. There we go. All right. And then the Father, Son, and Spirit send the church. And so we are caught up in this divine community and male and female means that there's an us-ness to being human, that we are meant for community, that we are built for relationship, that the image of God is not fully realized in isolation or apart from others. So to fully image God in community, you need men and you need women. And how we handle our sexuality has huge bearing on the degree that we reflect the image and likeness of God. Let me go philosophical for a second on a rabbit trail and I'll come back to the text. But it's like humans are human doings more than human beings. We do humanity. We either do it in a way that reflects the image of God or we do dehumanity. We are dehumanized as we reflect whatever it is we exalt in God's place. Are you with me? Yeah. So, um, fascinating. Just absolutely fascinating to me. And so before we move into chapter 2, there's one more thing that I want to point out here. Do you see the differentiation between Adam and animals? You see it there, right? Animals made in God's image, yes or no? No, right? Yeah, they're physical beings, no spiritual consciousness. But then you fast forward to Psalm 8, and I won't make you turn there right now, but Psalm 8 says, what is mankind, Adam, that you are mindful of them, plural, right? Human beings, that you care for them. You have made them a little lower than the angels, right? And crown them with glory and honor. And he talks about how they're exalted over animals. And so now you have this new classification of creatures. Hebrews 1.14 describes angels as ministering spirits. And so on one hand, we have animals, physical, not spiritual. On another hand, we have angels, spiritual, not physical. Sometimes they manifest, but they're spiritual. They are not embodied creatures. But then something altogether different is Adam. Adam is a physical being with a spiritual consciousness. Let's, let's look at how Genesis describes this. Fast forward. Genesis 2, verse 7. I know this is like a biblical whirlwind, but hang on. It is worth the reward. Verse 7, chapter 2. Yahweh God formed a man from the dust of the ground, Adama. He formed a Adam from the Adama. It's a fun word play. He formed a man from the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living being. That's the word we get soul from. We we aren't we don't have a soul. We are a soul. You are a living being. And so, um, Adam comes from the ground. Humanity is one part dirt, one part divine breath. That's that's humanity biblically. Bit of dirt, just like the animals. Divine breath, unlike the animals. Okay. And so, uh, the point here is. That we have a spiritual awareness, but we're physical beings. We're not angel and we are not animal. That the human person and the human community, rather, is intended to be the point where heaven and earth meet. That the human is the, the nexus point between heaven and earth. And the reason the two are split apart is because of sin. And we'll talk about that next week. So why am I talking about animals and angels and dirt and breath? It's worth it. There are two narratives that your culture is telling you. Our culture is telling us. Two narratives. One predominant narrative and one very quiet narrative, but equally as powerful. One, the first narrative goes like this. You are no different than an animal. You're animal, essentially. Animals have urges, and they give in to their urges. They do that. They fulfill what they feel like doing. Right? There is no reasoning with my rabbits. Right? Stop it! For the love, right? Anyway, yeah, there's no reasoning, right? They just are going to do what they're going to do. Animals have urges and they fulfill them. Sex is another urge. It's an appetite like food. When you're hungry, you eat. When you're horny, you have sex. This is how our culture views it. Sorry if that was too racy, Lauren. No, 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 you good? Okay. No, all right. Lauren's is like waiting for me to drop something that's going to be awkward. So 
Here we go. We're, we're going to keep trucking. So the first narrative goes like this. You are an animal. You have appetites. Fulfill them. It is all good. And the highest good that our culture aspires to is just this authentic expression of my individual desires. So now I need to express those individual desires if I'm going to be happy. And it's cool as long as the people I'm expressing those individual desires with are consenting. So the definition of sex in our culture is this. It is a, it's a pleasurable recreational activity between consenting adults. That's what it is, and that's what you are being told everywhere. And since you are no different than the animals, all you are is your biology. All you are is your chemistry. Just go for it. And yet, let me just suggest to you that that is maybe one of the most limiting narratives to our humanity. It seems like liberation at first, do whatever you want, but at the end of the day, it is all oppression. It is reducing you to no more than your animistic urges. There is something more to you. You are not an animal. And so that's the predominant narrative wonder, number one. Predominant narrative number two is probably one you've gotten implicitly if you've been involved in church long. This is the religious narrative, the one that denies desire, that says sexuality is not a very important part of your humanity. In fact, whatever it is that you're feeling, suppress it. Suppress it. If you have to make a baby, I guess go ahead. But really, just suppress it. That was St. Augustine. Augustine wreaked havoc on our sexuality um, for hundreds and hundreds of years. But uh, he basically said it's dirty and it's good for procreation. So anyway, uh, and so in other words, in the church, if you're living in this narrative, it's don't talk about it. Sex is dirty. But this is a distortion of the very fabric that God has woven us together with. And so this narrative I call angel syndrome. Angel syndrome denies our embodiedness. It, it denies the tove in Genesis 1. It, does, it says actually God was mistaken. It wasn't that good. And so you can't enjoy it for what it is. And so it puts us in a classification that the Bible does not put us in. Are you with me? So we're not animals. We're not angels. We're Adam. We're Adam. And so, if on the one hand we are more than our biology, then what you are feeling sexually is not the defining and most important part of you. But on the other hand, we are not just souls waiting escape from the body. That is theology that comes from Plato. It does not come from Moses or David or Jesus or Paul. Don't get your theology from an old dead Greek dude named Plato. It does not work. Okay, he says bodies are bad. The Bible says bodies are good. Bodies matter. Desire matters. Longing and sensuality matter. So what do we do as embodied creatures? I hope this is the question that you're asking because I'm going to answer it now. We what do we do as embodied creatures? How does God design this sexuality thing to work? Fast forward a little bit more to Genesis 2, 18, 18. Yahweh God said, it is not good for the man to be alone. I will make a helper suitable for him. Not good here is not evil. Evil is ra. And we get that in like Joseph's narrative when he says stuff like you meant evil for me. God meant tov. Here, not good just simply means it doesn't work. It doesn't work for Adam to human without another human. He cannot he function. He does not work as a human alone. And so God says, I'm going to make a helper suitable. This is, again, a text that gets all kinds of misunderstood. But basically, the two Hebrew words are etzer and konegdo. Etzer means strong one who comes alongside the other. It's most often used as a word to describe God. So it is not uh, a, a subjective uh, um, critical word. It is. It's. It's actually emphasizing her strength and helping him be a human. Guys, have you noticed this? Right. And connecto means just like, corresponding to, matching. And so God says, "Hey, that prototype needs improvement. Let's get a woman." Right. And so he makes male and female, and they have this magnetic type matching relationship. None of the animals are a good match. And so God makes a woman from the same stuff as Adam actually makes him from Adam. Apparently, listen to this. This is one of my favorite old classic commentators says this. The woman, he says, is not made out of his head to top him. Not out of his feet to be trampled upon by him, but out of his side to be equal with him, under his arm to be protected, and near his heart to be beloved. That's cool, huh? 
Yeah, like I think that's a great way to look at that creation narrative in terms of what it means. Now, here is the picture of where our sexuality is headed in the Bible. Okay, here's the picture. God says, brings the woman to the man. It's right there in the text. He brings the woman to the man. Most Genesis scholars understand this to mean this is the first wedding ceremony. God's walking Eve down the aisle. Right. He's bringing her to him. Okay, and that's pretty cool stuff. You know, and then um, just to bring that out into the open, we see the first wedding vows. Bone of my bones, flesh of my flesh, he says. And here is the deal. Um, another scholar, Walter Brueggemann, says this. He points out that this is less likely an expression of similarity, like, oh, you're like me, you have bones and flesh. It's actually an expression of deep, loyal commitment. It's a covenant that he's entering into. You now are bone of my bones, flesh of my flesh. In other words, I will treat you as if you were myself. I will treat you just like myself. It is a commitment of common, mutual loyalty. It is not a contract. A contract is quid pro quo. I will do this for you as long as you do not offend me or drop the ball in any way, which lasts how long in a marriage? <laughs> You're humans together. It's not. It's going to be a mess. Now, a covenant is I'm loyal no matter what. I'm loyal no matter what. And so at once... We see this covenant set in place. God brings her. They covenant. And uh, now the couple embodies that covenant commitment. They move in towards covenant union. So verse 24 says this. says, that is why the man leaves his father and mother and is united to his wife. And they become one flesh. Adam and his wife were both naked and they felt no shame Total safety and total vulnerability. This is, this is part of the vision God holds up for us. How much of our life is spent masking and, 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 and shielding people from seeing us as we are. And yet the vision of sexuality in a committed covenant marriage is this beautiful, total, total vulnerability and utter safety. That's awesome. That's cool stuff. And so, he's to leave. His mother and father, Adam doesn't have a mother and father, unless it's like dirt A and dirt B. I don't know. Anyway, so, uh, but it, he is literally sticking to her. That's what it means to be united to her. To, to unite to her is to stick to her. It means to maintain covenant relationship, which, by the way, takes active cultivation and a lot of work. Amen. All right. And so, uh, the result of this is that they become one flesh. You guys, this is atomic bomb language. One flesh, two people, one flesh. It's explosive. The two become one. It describes this powerful and very physical as well as spiritual way that a couple blurs lines between him and her. You ever realize you're talking to more than just one person when you're just talking to one person. You know, you've talked to one person who's been married forever and they've cultivated oneness really well. And every time you're talking to them, you're like, I don't feel like I'm just talking to one dude or one woman. I feel like I'm talking to them plus the, the kind of awareness and personality and humor and concerns of their other half. You know, you get, you get a two for one. And, and, and the reality is that that's an experience of a couple that they, they aren't just sometimes one in bed. There are one in life. And that is the picture of one flesh. So sex here is this this glue. It is a whole person bonding. This is what the man is describing in Song of Solomon's 5:1. When he so, Song of Solomon, there's one Solomon. 5:1 he says describe he's describing my my milk, my honey, my wine. It's a poetic description of oneness. And the Hebrew word here is Echad, Echad, and it is the word to describe Yahweh Himself in the Shema in Deuteronomy six, right? Uh, Shema Israel, uh, Yahweh Eloheinu, Eloheinu Echad, Yahweh Echad, right? It says He's one. Our God, our God, our God is one, and so it, is, it describes the essence and oneness of God. It also describes the oneness of a couple. That is how powerful this covenant and this bond is intended to be. How cool is that? All right. So sex is a big deal. And yet our culture is schizophrenic and it says it's not a big deal, it's just sex. And yet we cannot get away from it because it's in every movie and every song and it is everywhere all the time. 
And, and here's the thing. This isn't just stuff that's in the Bible. If you're someone here today and you're like, you know, the Bible's cool. This is not... A, it's not authoritative in my life. Like, I kind of get where you're coming from. Let, let me just offer this as well. Neuroscience is, is producing studies that are basically saying, saying the same thing that the Bible's been affirming for centuries. And if that helps you see the wisdom of the scriptures, then great. If it doesn't help you, move on. And there, there are these chemicals that we have. They're fun chemicals, really. They're awesome. The first one is dopamine. Do you know what dopamine does? It makes you go, woo, after sex. Right? That's what dopamine does. Dopamine is the reward chemical. It's a tar- it's targeted by addictive drugs. It's most frequently released during sex and it is the wow that was awesome chemical. Right? And so it's good stuff. But then there's other stuff. There's these other chemicals that your brain releases during sex. And women, you get this cool little chemical called oxytocin. Oxytocin does this awesome job of bonding you. To somebody, it's released four times. It's released during intimate touching, during uh, uh, sexual intercourse, during labor, and during nursing. So it bonds you to that person that just hurt you when they came out. It bonds you to that person that's nursing, and it bonds you to that person you just gave yourself to. And it tells your body a story. It says, "I'm yours, and he's mine, and we are bound." It is. Uh, profoundly powerful. Men, you get this other cool little chemical called vasopressin. Vasopressin's pretty awesome stuff. It is released a couple times. One, when we make love to a woman and when we bond with a child. In other words, it exists to keep you from going ADD. It keeps you dialed in on the ones who are supposed to matter in your life. To protect and care and nurture the people that are associated with the bond. It is profoundly powerful. Here's the point. What research has found is this, that uh, none of these chemical bonds can be undone without causing pain. In fact, brain scans show that the, the place on your brain where we see physical pain is also the same place where, uh, where we experience pain when these bonds are broken. It, in, in other words... Uh, they are very powerful. The other thing that's interesting to me about this is that people who think they're entering into a short-term relationship, they have no expectations of a lasting bond, their brains still release this chemical. And so you cannot tell yourself something that your brain and body is designed uh, to contradict. And so the implications of this are really quite phenomenal. The, the implications are really huge. First of all, there's just a total hubris in saying I can live totally selfishly today and be able to be committed later on. Who's to say you will ever actually desire, given a habit of self-fulfillment, ever actually desire to be others-focused? Um, and the reality, too, is that the more this bond is broken and reformed and bonded and, bonded and broken and bonded and broken, the greater decrease and our capacity to actually bond in the future. So this is, a very, this is a very powerful stuff, you guys. It's very powerful. So the more we bond and the more we break the bond, the less ability we have to bond down the road. The implications. The Bible says sex is explosively powerful. The only thing powerful enough to harness it so that it doesn't end up hurting us is this gift of marriage and covenant. And since sex is ultimately about whole person bonding for life, marriage is not a straitjacket, it's a life jacket. Sexuality is ultimately about self-giving and taken outside of the covenant. It is ultimately an expression of self-withholding and marriage. We're saying, I'm giving myself to you emotionally and economically and recreationally and relationally and physically, etc. But taken out of a covenant, sex is saying, I will give you some of me and I will withhold whatever I want to withhold. In other words, when we take sex outside of its intended environment, When we take it out of that, we are ultimately living in deception. We are telling one story with our bodies, but living another. And so when we we engage in sex without a covenant, we are making a practice of living into a lie. And some of you will say, hey, that's just not fair. I don't don't see it that way. I I should be able to do what I want. Let me just suggest there's wisdom in this. No, No one invites an electrician over to your house Right? And when they expose wires and when they say, don't touch that and don't go over there and don't stick your hand in that and this one's live, don't go near that. Nobody goes, that's not fair. I should be able to do that if I want to do that. And the electrician would look at you and go, go ahead. I have insurance for this. And if you're an idiot, 
Go ahead, right? And so why do we have such a difficult time responding to the one who wired us as sexual beings? The one who says, I know how I made you and I know how I can bless you. My intention is to bless you. And the ultimate issue for us is trust. What am I, uh, who am I going to trust? Who is God in my life? Let me, let me wrap up by just offering a few implications in terms of what does this mean for us? To the married persons in this room, there, there are married folks in here. Let me just say this. What is the story your marriage is telling? What's the story it's telling? Um, Let me just encourage you to ask two questions today. Go home with some homework. Two questions. First question is this. Where are the places we have cracks in our bond? Where are the places that threaten oneness? Start with yourself. What am I doing? Where am I looking? Who am I engaging with and how am I engaging there? That is a threat to the bond I'm called to live in because I've committed to it. Where are the cracks in the bond? Listen to one another. Create some space tonight to talk honestly without blaming with a lot of grace and begin to ask God together to help patch the places where there's cracks in the unity. Make a plan together. Maybe the greatest threat altogether is just not believing anymore that it is worth pursuing or that you have just given up entirely on a bonded oneness. And then here's, here's the second thing. Ask this question. What would it look like for us to grow in total bonded oneness? What would it look like for us to reach for a bigger vision of our oneness than we ever thought possible? What would that mean? Let me just tell you that there is hope here. If you have lived a story where that bonded oneness hasn't been a part, you've been living in a way that is damaging that bonded oneness, God is gracious, he is redemptive, he wants to move into those places and heal and help. And at the end of this series, we're going to provide some space to move towards healing. But at the end of the day, he offers us grace to make new decisions. And he says, look, when you direct and make a habit out of honoring that bond and oneness. So I can, I can transform the damage of the past into just absolute, robust, joyful goodness today and tomorrow. But it takes making a habit out of rejecting the things that threaten the bond and giving ourselves to the things that, that solidify it. Single folks, single folks, I just want to say, this is a vision worth waiting for. It's a vision worth pursuing. Um, you know, I, I think, I just want to speak positively about this. And I, what I want to say here is like, I, Lauren and I were virgins on our wedding night. And it was awesome. And it's been awesome. And it hasn't diminished any part of our marriage. It's only strengthened it. Because you tell her all the time, you're the best sex I've ever had. Right? Uh, too far? No. All right. Anyway, we... Um, <laughs> So we, but what's, what's awesome about this, you guys, what's awesome. And I don't say this out of self-righteousness. There's no self-righteousness of plenty of brokenness in my life. But what I want to say here is out of humble gratitude, that's been, I want to say that that's been our story and it is worth it. I'm speaking mostly to you guys. It is worth it because the less things you have in your life that can threaten that bonded oneness down the road, the better and the easier and and the the richer it's going to be later on. So let me just say that to you. Move toward a sexuality that God blesses because it's worth waiting for. It's so good. And so uh, the the other thing too is if you're single, the church has to be a safe place to say like, I desire to be bound to somebody. And so be a community group that validates the experience of your single brothers and sisters. Listen and encourage And be there and be an intimate community for them. The other thing, though, that Paul says this. He says this, hey, if you're married, you haven't sinned. Whoa, big compliment. But if you're single, remain single, right? He exalts singleness. The first worldview in the history of of humanity to say singleness is a valid paradigm for life. And so Paul would say, you have freedom to give yourself to the cause of Christ in a way married people are. They're just too complex and busy and messed up to be able to do. So live into that and give yourself to the bond of intimacy with Christ and his bride. Let uh, let me also say this. High school students in particular, middle school students if you're listening, college students if you're around, be somebody who seeks wisdom in this area. Don't be arrogant here. 
Right? And, and don't be afraid either. Because the, hopefully the adults in your life, and I can't speak for every one of them, but for me and I, I know on staff and, and your youth staff, we're people who want to come alongside you and encourage you here. It's not shameful. This is a good thing. God made you this way, so let's talk about it in a way that moves you towards wisdom. But here's the deal. Be a critical thinker on this. Be a critical thinker. Don't just accept whatever narrative you're fed. Don't just accept what looks good. Because whatever choices you make now, you will bring into your future. And if you make a habit out of selfish experimentation, it will only result in selfish character. If you want to be an awesome spouse, guys, experiment in selflessness. You'll rock later. Okay? Others today, this is an area where you've got hurt and pain and baggage and it. This is not a fun topic for you. Let me just encourage you today. Don't go any further on your journey with Christ without allowing him to come into these places and bring healing. We have environments like mending the soul and soul care. And our pastoral staff is available as well to walk alongside you and pray and bring healing and newness and freedom. I want to invite you, church, at the beginning of this series, to invite God into your sexuality, to ask the question, what does it look like for me to live into this vision as someone who's married or single or hurting or confused or whatever? How is Jesus wanting to shape me toward this vision? Let's take communion. I want to invite the the ushers to come forward, because this is a moment where after all this talk about sex and sexuality, we have an opportunity to say, What's going to define me moving forward is not what I feel, what has been done to me, and what I've done. What is going to define me is the free grace offered in Jesus. That he is the one and he alone can, should be worthy of providing an identity for me. That God's going to be a part of making me new in him. And so let, let the gospel remind you today that sexuality actually points you to something bigger than just your own personal fulfillment. That sexuality points you to a God who pursues you, is passionate for you, and wants to be one with you. To be bound to you for life. And so we're going to go to the table to receive the bread and the cup, and we're going to remember as we take it that God is the one who's given everything. He's moved heaven and earth to be one with us. It's something that isn't earned. It's something that is not unearned. It is freely offered. And so wherever you are and wherever you've been today, you can move towards the table and declare to your heart and to your Lord that his shed blood and his offered body provides you with the the greatest of all bonds, the greatest of all oneness, that God binds himself forever to his bride, the church, and all who embrace his son Jesus are a part of that bride who say, I want in on what God is freely giving and I will surrender all I know of me to all I know of him. Let me pray for us as we worship and take communion together. Father, we love you. We thank you for designing and cultivating our humanity to reflect you. We ask for your spirit's help and grace and empowerment to live into it fully and receive your blessings for it, to move towards the sexuality you bless. Whether those are micro steps or mega steps, we need your help to do it. And we, I pray for this church that we would be a church that lives into your vision for us by the strength and power of your spirit. So we move now and declare Jesus' death is for us. And we declare that we are yours because of what you have done freely for us. In Jesus' name. Amen.